Did you know you can feel a touch that depresses your face four one hundred thousandths of an inch? You can see a small candle flame from 30 miles away on a clear night. I'm told the human eye can distinguish among more than 300,000 colors. And you can taste four one-hundredths of an ounce of salt dissolved in 132 gallons of water. And you can smell one tiny drop of perfume, tiny drop diffused in a 1,200 square foot building. We have incredible senses. God made us that way. There's so many amazing things about mankind made in the image of God. But what about our spiritual senses? What about our spiritual sensitivity? You know, we've been talking a lot in our series through the book of Hebrews about the Jewish culture because the writer is addressing Christians who had come out of that Jewish culture. And in fact, because of persecution, they were contemplating maybe going back to it. And so obviously the book of Hebrews contains quite a bit of Jewish-Israeli history and the, some of the rituals and sacrificial system and, and so forth. You know, but one thing we learn is that the Israelites were not particularly spiritually sensitive in the first century, were they? And I think the church is following in her footsteps 2,000 years later. I mean, think about it. For centuries, the Jews were given the signs of the Messiah again and again. I mean, some of them quite detailed. We touched on this briefly in our Bible study time in the first hour, but, you know, they were told he would be born of a virgin, told he would be born in Bethlehem, told he would have a forerunner, many things like that, and yet they missed him. They missed him. They rejected him. They crowned him with thorns instead of a king's crown. They were so obsessed with the Old Testament law that when the one of whom the prophets of old had foretold would come actually did come, they missed him. I mean, we might say the first century Jews were fixated on the shadows of Christ, so much so that they failed to recognize the reality of Christ. Are we making the same mistake today? Especially with all that's going on around us. I mean, major paradigm shifts and global restructuring. I mean, life as we know it is completely different. Um, I mean... Someone said, we used to be saying, boy, I want to go back to 2019. Well, it wouldn't surprise me if in the next few weeks we're thinking, man, I'd, I'll be happy to go back to 2020. I mean, that's how rapidly things are changing. So the question before us is, how sensitive are you spiritually? Are you able to look beyond what you can see and feel and touch, beyond maybe the suffering and heartache of life, to the reality of an unseen realm. And, you know, this is what, particularly the last two or three chapters that we've been focusing on, what the writer of Hebrews has been saying in his quest to help his listeners and by extension us have an unshakable faith to trust God even in trying times. He's been calling upon us to have a heavenly perspective. He's been talking about 
the heavenly high priest. We talked about that in chapter 7 and chapter 8 and going all the way back to chapter 4. And he asked last week in the text, we said, where's your focus? Remember, we said, home is where your heart is. And, and chapter 9 expands upon that earthly versus heavenly uh, contrast. And the writer uh, reminds us that what we see is not what really matters. There's more to life than what we can see and feel and touch. You know, Plato was a philosopher that lived about 400 years before Christ, famous for his Republic. And, you know, there's some debate over the precise date of his death, but let's put it at roughly 348 B.C. And in the Republic, he, he talks about the allegory of the cave. I don't know if you've ever studied this. But he gives this allegory of the cave to compare and contrast the effect of education and training in his day, what he called paideia, with the lack of it in, on human nature. It was kind of the learned versus the unlearned. And the allegory of the cave is written as a dialogue between Plato's brother, Glaucon, and Plato's mentor, Socrates. So the, the allegory of the cave is Socrates talking to Glaucon. And in the allegory, Socrates, and I've kind of found a pictorial representation of it that I've got on the screen here, Socrates describes a group of people who have lived chained to the wall of a cave all their lives, facing a blank wall. And these people watch shadows projected on the wall from objects passing in front of a fire behind them. That's their reality. They give names to these shadows. The shadows constitute these prisoners' reality. Socrates explains how a philosopher, he says, is a lot like a prisoner who's been freed from the cave and comes to understand that the shadows on the wall are not reality at all. The philosopher, because he's been set free, can perceive the true form, that's Plato's term for truth, of reality rather than the manufactured reality presented by the shadows that are seen by the prisoners. And the sad thing is the inmates of the cave don't really even desire to leave their prison because it's all they've known. They don't know of any better life. Well, in the allegory, one day the prisoners managed to break free from their bonds, not because they were searching for something different, but because they were uncomfortable or whatever. And after doing so, they discover that their reality was not what they thought it was at all. And the human condition, Plato explains, is forever bound to the impressions that are received through the senses. The freed prisoner represents those who understand that the physical world is only a shadow of truth. And for Plato, truth is what he calls the realm of pure form. Now, I don't know, maybe he was on to something. We wouldn't call it pure form, we just call it truth, as revealed by our Creator in His written Word. In chapter 9 of Hebrews, the original recipients, they needed to see beyond the shadows of their suffering and hardship and difficulties, they needed to understand that there was something bigger at play. And I think in times like these, we all need to remember that the world as it appears 
is not the world as it really is. There's always something more than what you can fee see and feel and touch. One of my favorite sayings, you've probably heard me say it, is it's not about what it's about. It seldom is. <laughs> and we need to understand, and we talked about this in my Spirit of the Antichrist series, that there is a spiritual battle raging. Ephesians 6 tells us that. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We live in this realm of time, space, and matter and flesh and blood. And obviously there are certain pragmatic aspects of it. We must react and interact with the physical realm. You know, we need shelter. We need food. We need, you know, friends. We need buildings. We need, we need these things. But let us never forget that that's not ultimately what it's about. Do you understand that all of these things are going to burn up someday, right? And, and, and we need to remember that. So I want to take us back to 2,000 years ago when a, when a major paradigm shift was taking place in the world, much like today. The writer explains to this Jewish Christian audience that the sacrificial priestly system within Judaism was only a shadow cast by the reality of the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And for them to be considering going back to that shadow would, would be a depreciation. It would be a devaluing of their life and outlook and perspective. They happened to live on earth in a time when after centuries, God had revealed himself through the most amazing manifestation of his glory, his eternal son, Jesus. And unlike all of their predecessors, all, unlike all of the fathers in Judaism, they were alive in that time. And these people had believed the gospel. They trusted in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. They placed their faith in Him alone as the only one who could forgive sin and give them the gift of eternal life. And now they were part of the church, which by this time was only some 30 years old. And and they were feeling their way through. And God was still revealing truths through the written word of God. And the church was still kind of taking shape. But not long after this, just a few decades, the complete revelation of God would be revealed and given. And the church would then move on into the second century, the third century. And now here we are 2,000 years later. But those folks needed to understand that they had been privileged to really see the reality and to see Jesus. Many of them walked and talked with him. We've talked about this. You know, Many of them got saved on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. They've Undoubtedly, many of them had seen Jesus during his three-and-a-half-year earthly ministry. They saw the reality. You know, One of the key verses in Hebrews that we come back to again and again, and eventually we're going to get there and we're going to camp out there for one Sunday, but it's in Hebrews 12 where the writer says, Look unto Jesus. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Look to Him. And what he's trying to get his original audience to understand is that if you focus on the shadows, you might miss Christ. Right? This theme of a shadow versus reality comes up explicitly by name twice in Hebrews. Once is in chapter 8, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, when... Uh, or no, actually it was last week when the writer referred to the earthly priests as serving a shadow of the heavenly things. Do you remember that? The, the who there is referring in the context to the heavenly priests. 
I mean the priests, the earthly priests, they serve a shadow of the heavenly things. Right? And then in chapter 10, which we'll get to not long from now, he refers to the law as another shadow. He says, the law was a shadow of the good things to come. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, uses this same analogy. Remember, Paul may have written Hebrews for many reasons that uh, some of us think that he did, but we can't be 100% certain. But one of them is certain themes that seem to just parallel exactly. And that doesn't necessarily mean he wrote it. There's other evidence, too. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit, is the ultimate author of Scripture, and he may have put the same concept on the minds of different biblical writers. Or sometimes one biblical author, the Holy Spirit, led them to depend and lead and get information from another. But it's just interesting that the Apostle Paul uses the same language in Colossians. He says, so let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, because they're just a shadow of things to come, right? Legalism is no standard, in other words. The substance, he goes on to say, is Christ. And that's really the theme of Hebrews in a nutshell. I mean, I've called it trusting God in trying times, but how do you do that, right? Well, by focusing on Jesus. But Jesus was no longer present with these first century Jewish Christians. He wasn't living in their community anymore. So to focus on Jesus meant not to gather down by the, the, the seashore and listen to him speak or go to a wedding and watch him perform a miracle. For them in their day and us today, nothing's changed. It meant to see the unseen, <clears throat> to look beyond the shadows. To have a spiritual viewpoint, a spiritual sensitivity. You with me? So I see in the first 15 verses of chapter 9, we'll look at the next section next week, but I see three keys to spiritual sensitivity. How can we see beyond the shadows and focus on the unseen reality? How can we become so mature in our faith that we're unhindered by the shadow reality that's all around us and instead consumed by the spiritual reality the truth and the substance of christ remember what the writer <laughs> said earlier uh, in his letter about spiritual maturity i think we called that message um, something about abcs do you know your abcs or something like that but it was about spiritual maturity uh, from chapter five he said Solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, mature. Those who, by reason of use, have their senses <clears throat> exercised to discern both good and evil. See, there's a spiritual sensitivity that comes with knowing the Lord. The more we know the Lord, the more we're able to do, as the writer has been saying, and as Paul says elsewhere, uh, what, what he says, which is to set our minds on things above. To remember where our citizenship is. It's in heaven, right? We're here for a purpose. We have a job to do. <clears throat> but this isn't really our home. The minute you trusted Christ and became born again, you were adopted into the family of God, and your citizenship is now in heaven. Right? So three keys to spiritual sensitivity. The first five verses tell us that we should escape the shadow of structures. Escape the shadow of structures. He, he starts out by talking about the earthly sanctuary or the temple as it was in their day. It was very much a, a part of the Jewish life in the first century. 
And, and for these Christians to abandon Christianity and revert back to Judaism meant that they'd be participating once again in that temple system. A temple system, by the way, which was about to be destroyed in a couple of years by the Romans from, from their perspective. Um, Herod's uh, temple project had only just been completed a few years earlier, 62, 63 A.D., a long-standing uh, project, but, and, and it would soon be ransacked by Rome. But the, the Herod's temple there wasn't the end-all, be-all of God's earthly structure and tabernacle. It all started way back uh, in the, the wilderness with Moses. So listen to what he says in verse 1. They indeed, even the, then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. And he's going to go on to describe it, just sort of by way of review. Not that they needed review, but maybe it had been a while. They'd been part of the church for some of them 30 years. They'd been assembling together on the first day of the week. They'd, been, uh, they'd sort of not been in that world for a while. So he wants to kind of remind them about that shadow of the structures of the earthly uh, sanctuary. So if you go back to the wilderness, you know, the, the, the tabernacle consisted of three main areas, the outer court, then the holy place, and then the, the holy of holies, the inner sanctum. And here's just another vantage point. And it was protected. You didn't go near that. It was holy ground. It was a special place where the priest, which he's going to talk about in the next section of this chapter, did their service. And then I thought this was an interesting artist's rendering as you look through the veil into that little section where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Now, fast forward to the first century. Uh, so some 1,400 years later, the time of the Hebrew Christians that the writer is addressing, and, and we're dealing with, you know, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and Herod, you know, who, who, who had started this project and this major renovation, built the Temple Mount. The Temple proper is right there at the very top of it. And those of you that have been to Jerusalem, you know exactly what I'm uh, talking about. And it was, of course, modeled after Solomon's Temple. And you can see, and we'll come back to this in a second, but I've cut away there, and you can see the, this Holy of Holies and stuff that the writer is talking about. But back to the first century a Jewish temple, there's the Temple Mount, and there's the temple right in the center, Herod's Temple. This was very much a part of the Jewish uh, sacrifice. Um, and listen to what he says. Again, he's using the term tabernacle, but the tabernacle became what is the temple. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, or sometimes the holiest of holies, right? Which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above, all, and above it were the cherubim guarding it, uh, cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. In other words, he's, he's just sort of saying... You know, but we, we don't need to keep going down the line. You, you know, he sort of understood they're familiar with all of these things, but you almost get the sense that, you know, the, whoever the writer is would, would love to just continue to speak because there are whole books of the Old Testament that speak in great detail of the structures that were the shadow pointing to Almighty God, to Yahweh and His eternal Son. But let's 
zoom in on the Holy of Holies and look at some of those things that he talked about were there. The golden lampstands, the table of showbread, the altar. Then you see the veil there, which of course was rent in two at the cross when Christ died. And then there's the, the most holy place with the cherubim and the ark underneath it. You know, it's interesting to me as I'm teaching through Hebrews and, and yet teaching through end times Bible prophecy, how often they intersect. You know, I talked to John months before we actually started here, during, you know, after the candidating process before the start time, and we went over, uh, you know, what books he had preached through through the 18 years and what should I teach and you know, basically, he'd done such a thorough job of expositional teaching, he left me like half of one verse, and I think it was in Leviticus or something. But anyway, I said, well, can I teach on Hebrews? He said, no, yeah, I don't think I've taught through Hebrews, at least not recently. And so that's why I chose it. And then I chose the end times because I felt like it was relevant and it's something that people are interested in. But they intersect. And I, I was told this week, just in my study, uh, that the chief rabbi of the Temple Mount Institute stated about a year ago that all the furnishings necessary for the interior of the temple were completed and ready to be installed, right. except for the Ark of the Covenant. And this same rabbi also stated that they know where the Ark is and that they could recover it when they're ready. I mean, I guess they should have told Indiana Jones it would have saved him some trouble. <laughs> I don't know if this is true or not, but that's what this chief rabbi says. But one thing we need to understand from the biblical teaching on God's end times plan is that even, even if it is true, and even if this temple is being ready to be built, that's not the temple that our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is going to inhabit someday. That temple is described in Ezekiel 40 to 48. This is the one that the Antichrist is going to inhabit. So, I mean, it has relevance because... It's certainly a sign of the times. We know there's got to be a temple built in the tribulation period. And we know that the tribulation period is not going to happen until after the rapture, as we've been talking about. So these are all sort of interesting, intriguing details that are happening. But, you know, don't get caught up in this hype about this temple that's being built. Because it's just being built for one purpose, to be desecrated. And to, for people to worship Satan by worshiping the Antichrist. The temple that we're looking forward to is the one we're going to help rule and reign in, which is the one Ezekiel describes in Ezekiel 40 to 48, and that's going to be built after the second coming when the kingdom has been inaugurated. But in any event, the writer's point is that the veil has been torn and the wall of separation removed. Why would you want to hang those curtains up once again, right? Um, you know, we can boldly approach the throne of God, according to Hebrews 4. These things are all just shadows. So my question is, what structures, as we try to apply this today, stand between you and Christ? I mean, we're very blessed at Plum Creek Chapel here in Sedalia. I mean, we have outstanding, well-kept facilities thanks to the leadership of Paul, who just takes personal ownership of this and has for years. And he doesn't like the credit, but he's a big part of that. They're excellent. I was blown away the first time I came in here at how excellent things are. 
We take pride in them, and, and we should, in a manner of speaking. But what if it all went away? I mean, I don't want to be too melodramatic here because I'm not a prophet and I don't know what the future holds, but this is a pretty tenuous time. What if, what if this was the last Sunday we ever met in this building? What if something happened this week that changed the world as we know it? And the church in America had to become like the church in so many countries where we go underground. How attached are you to these things? I'm pretty attached, personally. You know, I, I speak for a living, and uh, the Lord's allowed me to, to do that, and I enjoy seeing people's lives impacted by the Word of God and seeing light bulbs go off. And, and, but I also, like many, have my comfort zone. And I, I, because I've gotten in a habit and a routine, I, I get uncomfortable when things aren't like I'm used to them, right? I need this nice platform here. That's why we got it. I need to be able to put my notebook, up, my laptop here. You know, I need to have a place for water. And, and, I, and I'm very visual. I have been for, I was doing PowerPoint before people knew what PowerPoint was. I taught PowerPoint in, at the college level, and I, I'm not necessarily particularly good at it, but I depend on visuals. If I have to preach without visuals, I'm no good. <laughs> I'm just not. I'm, not. I'm not able to paint pictures verbally, right? I like to be able to show things. That's my structure. But that's a shadow, Never let earthly structures become come between you and Christ. And that's what these readers were w contemplating doing. Number two, though, uh, not only escape from the shadow of structures, but he then goes on to talk about exposing the shadow of service, the way I put it. He talks about the priestly service within the temple. And he, he talked a lot about this in chapters 7 and 8, but he brings it up here in the context of these earthly shadows. And the priestly service involved, you know, daily duties and sacrifices as well as annual activities like the Day of Atonement. Uh, but the priestly service, like the temple structures, was just a shadow of the reality of Christ. I mean, the priestly service no doubt had a measure of, of comfort for these Christian Jews who prior to their salvation had been immersed in that culture of rituals and sacrifices. And, and even though many of them had, had gotten saved and been away from it, in some cases for two or three decades, it's like that old sort of security blanket that, you know, it, it brings a measure of, of comfort. And so when the, the, the heat got turned up and things began to get difficult in the first century under Nero's persecution, a lot of them said, you know, I love Jesus, but boy... You know, I, I like that ritual. I like that service. So what rituals stand between you and Christ? Notice what he says. When these things had been thus prepared, again, referring back to all the stuff in the Holy of Holies there, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. That was their daily thing, right? But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. You know, on that day of atonement, what we now call Yom Kippur, uh, what Jews call Yom Kippur, 
His offering covered the sins of the people they had committed ignorantly as opposed to those that had been committed, committed deliberately. And in the Old Testament law, deliberate apostasy came under pretty severe punishment, even death. Deliberate, intentional, willful apostasy. But ignorant sin uh, was treated a little bit differently. And so the writer here, and we've talked about the warning passages in Hebrews, we've looked at a couple of them, or three of them already, where he's challenging them, don't make this decision. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm laying it out for you, don't make the conscious decision as some already had. And, and I think what he's referring here to, in fact, he talks about this in chapter 5. Uh, in chapter 5, he said that Jesus, our high priest, can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weaknesses, Hebrews 5 too. I think he's saying, look, I understand that a lot of you are just sort of caught up in this. And it's dangerous. You're losing family members. You're being persecuted. There's a lot of tension. There's unrest. There's talk of them storming the temple and destroying the temple by the general Titus. And, and I get it if you're just sort of swept up in that. And I want to challenge you not to, to get too far down the road in that. But if you're seriously, willfully deciding to depart from the living God and just say, I love you, Jesus. Thanks for saving me. But I'm not willing to die and I'm, I'm going back to the system that Rome was still sort of in cahoots with. That's a serious thing. He goes on to say, uh, the Holy Spirit indicating that, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. I mean, this is basically it. The shadow of service. In other words, the message the Holy Spirit intended to communicate by the tabernacle and the temple and the priestly arrangement was designed to convey the idea that the true way to God did not ultimately lie in them, but they, it lied in what they pointed to. They were just a shadow. The Old Covenant sacrificial system didn't in and of itself meet the, the greatest human need at its deepest level. Only the Lamb of God could do that. Not some lamb that was picked from a flock. The regulations which formed part of the Jews' adherence to that shadow system were concerned with external things. And, of course, the sinfulness of mankind is an internal thing. And then he comes right out and says it. It was symbolic for the present time, in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. It was symbolic. The NIV, which is a little bit more paraphrastic, starts out verse 9 here. This is an illustration for the present time. That's not a bad way to summarize what he's saying. But the literal Greek word is it was symbolic. The word symbolic there, I don't have it on the screen, but it's the Greek word parabole. Sound like anything we know? Parable, right? It's the word parable. Parabole is used 50 times in the New Testament, and 47 of them it's translated parable, mostly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? So when Jesus would speak in parables, what was he doing? It's actually a compound word to throw and beside, or beside to throw, para, beside, bali, to throw. So it's to basically take an everyday experience and throw it beside a spiritual principle 
so people can help understand it better. Right? A parable. And essentially the writer is saying that this whole Jewish priestly service was a parable, an illustration. It was intended to call to mind a greater spiritual truth. It was a means to an end, not an end unto itself. It's not about the service. It's about what the service means, what the service points to. It reminds me of one occasion where the Jewish leaders confronted Jesus about fasting. Do you remember this in Luke 5? They come to him and say, Why do the disciples of John fast often? And they make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees. But Jesus, your disciples don't fast at all. They eat and drink. You know, you're so bad, Jesus. You're just not following these service rituals, right? And what did Jesus say? Boy, he put them in their place like he usually did. He says, uh, hey guys, can, the, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? In other words, this is, this is amazing to me. This is a case where the Jews literally missed Jesus right in front of them because they were fixated on the shadow of service. <laughs> I mean, we could think of other examples like the time Mary and Martha welcomed Jesus into their home. Remember this? Martha was distracted with much serving. Do you remember that? So she approached the Lord and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to do the dishes, or whatever they did in their day. And, uh, you know, tell her to help me. And what did Jesus say? Martha, Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha. Come on, Martha. <laughs> you are worried and troubled about many things. One thing is needed, and what? Mary has chosen the good part. You know why? She saw the reality. Well, Martha was over here worried about the shadow, right? I think there's going to be many Christians in the days to come. Again, I'm not a prophet. Months to come, years to come. I could hedge my bets and say centuries to come. But I think it's soon. Where many Christians will have their worlds rocked because they're not able to serve the Lord the way they've been serving Him. They're going to be called to leave their comfort zone. And when that happens, it's going to expose the fact that their service was never about Christ. It was about the ritual of service. So I wonder, you know, to use Jesus' question here to Martha, are we choosing the good part? We need to expose the shadow of service. What if the time comes when we can't serve God the way we're used to? How are we going to respond? But finally, he ends this chapter with the reality. And he says, you know, you want to have spiritual sensitivity? Then embrace the reality of the Savior. You know, once we identify the shadows, only then can we see the reality. The problem is most people don't even know their shadows, like the people in Plato's cave. But once we're set free... We can see beyond the shadows to the substance. Verse 11 begins with a very strong contrastive uh, statement in, in Christ, in uh, Greek. It's, but Christ. He spent the first ten verses talking about shadows. But here's the reality. Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come. And notice again that reference to the things to come. 
things to come. I've pointed out how he starts the letter in chapter 2 by saying very plainly that we're not speaking of this world. We're speaking about the world to come. It was a world yet future for his original audience, and it's a world yet future for you and I today. And anyone who thinks that end times prophecy is irrelevant or naive, uh, this is they're missing the point. They're fixated on the shadows. The culmination of God's plan of the ages is what it's all about. There are still more realities to come. Yeah, we've seen Jesus, the substance of the shadow of the Jewish priestly system, but there are many shadows that should be pointing us to Christ yet today. He says his, his tabernacle is more perfect because it's not of this creation. And that's talking about the future kingdom. He says his blood is more effective, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place. In fact, he clarifies, look, if the blood of bulls and goats, uh, you know, uh, and the sprinkling of the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more the blood of Christ, right? His cleansing is more thorough. He's able to cleanse our consciences, right? And then he goes on to say, uh, for this reason, the last verse, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of the death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Stop looking at the here and now and think about the then and there. You know, think about Christ. Remember what he says again, going back to Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, what was the example? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Nothing that we might have to face or that these readers might have to face can even come close to comparing with the suffering that Christ had to face. So embrace the Savior. We need to embrace the Savior now more than ever before. All of our shadows are being torn down and ripped apart. Embrace the reality of the Savior. Have you ever tried to embrace a shadow, by the way? I mean, there's no shadows up here, but if there was a shadow, I mean, I, there's nothing to embrace. If you go to embrace, oh, there's nothing there, right? It's just a figment, right? But you embrace the reality, you know. I you gave my sons a hug before they left for college. You know, Morgan's like 12 feet tall. I hug him, and I'm like, bruise my lip on his belt buckle. It's like, how do you hug someone that's twice as tall as you, right? But boy, you know, it was there was some substance there, let me tell you, right? Three keys to, to spiritual sensitivity. Escape the shadow of structures, expose the shadow of service, and embrace the reality of the Savior. Are you ready to see beyond the shadows? We better be. And if you've never trusted in Christ, it starts there because the most important decision anyone can ever make is the decision to place their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins. So if you're here today or you're listening to this, I... I I want to encourage you to ask yourself, has there ever been a time when you've trusted in Christ? If not, that's priority number one. And it's a simple matter of faith. You don't have to walk an aisle or repeat a chant or sign a card. It's not that complicated. Jesus said it's so simple a child can understand it. Just who do you trust? Who are you trusting to forgive your sin and give you the gift of eternal life? It's got to be Christ. So you can trust Him today. And then as a believer, what we need to remember, and this is the takeaway, in Christ we've been set free. So it's time to walk out of the cave and see the real world.
Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, passage in Hebrews, Lord, so powerful, so convicting, and yet so timely. And so, Lord, we ask you just to uh, teach us all to just fall in love with your Son and our Savior all over again, to fix our minds on Him, and uh, to just be able to use your Son and our identity in Him as an anchor in the storm, no matter what may come our way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, and then if appropriately, we're, uh, we're going to uh, turn now to the Lord's Supper.